Disrupting the flow of money into coal, gas and oil is critical to limiting the impacts of climate change. Your bank could be investing billions of dollars into the fossil fuel industry. Bank Australia is an ethical bank that doesn't fund harmful industries. Join us and over 180,000 Australians who have made the switch. Search Bank Australia Solutions. My name is Kate Ashmore and I'm a proud Jar Jar Wurrung person. Today's episode of The Cool Down was recorded on the Wurundjeri lands of the Kulin Nation and the Gadigal lands of the Aura Nation. Together with Footy for Climate, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of country throughout Australia. Footy comes from Mangrook, a First Nations game that has been played on these lands, which have been protected and nurtured by Australia's first people for tens of thousands of years. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging for their continued connection to the land, water and culture, and look to their guidance and knowledge as we work towards a more sustainable future. We acknowledge the sovereignty was never ceded. This was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Welcome back to another episode of The Cooldown by Footy for Climate, brought to you by Bank Australia. I'm Nick Barr, and in this week's episode, focused on women and climate, I sit down with Grace Vegasana, Climate and Racial Justice Director at AYCC, Emma Pocock, founder and CEO of Frontrunners, and Sam Moston, Chief Executive Women President and Climate Change and Gender Equity Advocate. a climate change and gender equity advocate and was the first woman AFL commissioner. She is the founder of multiple organisations and has been a board director, chair or in a senior leadership position for 26 major institutions across Australia's sports, arts, Indigenous, diversity and non-for-profit sectors, including the Climate Council, the Go Foundation, the Minerva Network, One Million Women and the Sydney Swans, just to name a few. Her resume is actually way too long and impressive. We'd need a whole episode to cover to cover it and to do it justice. So apologies, Sam, that we've probably missed a few things. Sam is currently the president of Chief Executive Women and the Moston Medal for the Best and Fairest Women in AFL Sydney is named after her. Sam, welcome to the cool down. It's so nice to be here, but I'm feeling very, very old. <laughs> <laughs> Please don't at all. Not at all. And I also love your top. Sam is currently wearing a top that says women will change the world, which um, I think is, is very appropriate for this episode. I always think it should say women are changing the world. You're right, actually. I think we, We're already that's doing what I'm it. hearing already. You're already doing well, it. Well, that's what I'm hearing from Grace <laughs> um, and, and Emma and you. Thanks. And so. you are the inaugural Moston Medal holder. I am, and I have a story that I need to confess um, confess to on this podcast, and I'm a little bit shamed to say that I have actually lost the Moston Medal, and I'm so embarrassed about it, and I've been thinking about telling you for years, and it just hasn't... It hasn't felt right because you're so amazing, but I just needed to get it off my chest. Oh, look, I'm <laughs> devastated for you. I'm but, devastated but, too. But I think it's um, it was never about the medal. It was about what you did. <laughs> so, I'm and that you were the first it one. Turns up. But maybe we should just have one minted for you, a oh, special one. That'd be really that nice. Shouldn't be too hard. Can we organise <laughs> yes, that? Yes. <laughs> we'll change the world and organise that at and the same time. Medal, absolutely. Yeah, perfect. <laughs> um, now more about you, Sam. Sam, you grow you grew up the eldest of four girls living across the southern states with a dad working in the army. What was life like for you growing up? Well, I think as an oldest child, 
you have a lot of that kind of um, inherent responsibility for your younger sibling. So I think I, I've always thought of myself as sort of being born 30. So I'm, a, <laughs> I'm a bit of a nerd and I'm a bit of a take on responsibility, which I think just comes from being the eldest child. Yep. And we were all very close in age. So um, I had three younger sisters by the time I was uh, eight and we, 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 were, we were very bonded as a family. Being an army family had... A huge impact on my growing up. So we were traveling a lot when I was very young. We moved internationally very early on to the States and Canada before coming back to Australia Mm -hmm. and then living around my dad's jobs, mainly on army barracks. Mm. So near Watsonia in Melbourne and Mm -hmm. in South Australia near the barracks there. And so, and my dad was away for quite a period when he served in Vietnam and we moved in with my grandmother in Adelaide. So mm-hmm. we were kind of we were bonded as a family that was um, that many army families back then really had to be. There wasn't nearly the support given to the families that we see now for for people in military service. So we were in very small houses. We were on top of one another, and um, and we were brought up, I think, with a very strong sense of service um, from both my dad and my mum, and to really res- reflect on our innate privilege mm. and to make very wise choices about how we utilised that privilege. And so I think you know, from a very early age, I was one of those kids that, you know, I always wanted to join the school council. I wanted to put my hand up for school captain, true nerd. So, <laughs> that doesn't and, sound nerdy. That sounds, uh, that sounds very smart. No, it was more, it was that service thing yeah. about doing the right thing. And we were the kids that when it used to be quite safe to do this, you don't see mm. it as much now, but we were the kids who door knocked mm. um, many times during the year on behalf of the Hart Foundation or the Salvation Army. It was whatever my dad and mum thought was an important thing for us to be involved in mm. locally wherever we lived. We were those kids that were door knocking and collecting coins, as mm. it was, and writing out $2 receipts yeah. to people. So there was always something to do and a community to support. And um, so it was just it was just imbued in me growing up to be responsible and to think about our place in the world. Yeah, well, you can clearly see that in in all that you've done so far. I'm sure there's a lot more to come. Your dad was an AFL nut and a tragic Saints supporter. Did he pass this love for the game and the Saints onto you and your sisters? Without a doubt. <laughs> I don't know about my sisters. I can certainly say for me um, that, that sitting with my dad watching sport, as I think Emma said as well. Yeah, that was that was time I could get to spend with him on a Saturday afternoon, particularly when we lived in Melbourne. Mm. And I have vivid memories of, of listening to Lou Richards. That'll mean something to older people who watch <laughs> footy in the 70s and 80s. Um, black and white television sitting with my dad watching footy. And it was, um, it was just a a way of hanging with him. And I loved everything about what I was watching and hearing. I don't think I was conscious then at just how masculine it was and how mm. excluding of women it was. It was just time with my dad. Yeah. And I loved I loved the songs. I loved the team songs. I loved sort of the rituals of football. Mm. We didn't have enough money to have memberships and to be going to football. And as a family, we were just playing so much other sport as mm. girls, young, young girls as a family, that yeah. um, I didn't ever get to enjoy the sport as a player or as an athlete. Yeah. But I, I had this very, very strong memory of sitting with my dad and knowing about the seasons that were defined by the grand final yeah. and which teams were making it to the grand final and how I was born the year before St Kilda won its last wow. premiership in 1966. So that tells you how old I am. <laughs> and um, and you know, later on when I joined the AFL Commission, I remember saying to my dad, you and I will sit at the MCG for a Saints win of a premiership at some point in that decade I'm on the commission. 
and we went to three grand finals for a draw and two losses. Oh, and to this gosh. day, I think, I'm not sure the Saints will win a premiership in my dad's lifetime, who's now almost 90. And so he became a Giants supporter. He there flipped. you go. He flipped. There you sort go. Of got with the program and okay. thought living in Canberra, he should become a. Makes sense. Yep. This is the first I've heard of it. Yep. So if he needs any merchandise. Don't, they've I'll got the merchandise. Don't worry. They've, they've got a got it all. Do you need some merchandise? I do not need merchandise. <laughs> I've got a cupboard of every kind of footy merchandise available. <laughs> I'm sure. Sam, I didn't actually realise, but um, we've got a lot of similarities. I also am one of three, well, I'm one of three girls, the oldest, and grew up a Saints supporter too. So really? There you go. Oh, yep. I didn't know that. I did. I did. Oh, the connections. <laughs> did you, you sort of mentioned you played a lot of sports growing up and obviously there was an opportunity to play AFL when you were growing up. Do you think if there was, you would have played? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which position? Oh, well, if you take it from the positions I played in netball and basketball, it was generally centre, Okay. Um, occasionally a shooter, but mainly centre. I was mainly mm-hmm. a, a good utility yeah, around very the place. Good. So, yeah. um Make of that what you want for, <laughs> for footy. I'm thinking you, you just could play anywhere. No. Well, the thing that I, I regret most about not playing Australian rules football or actually any of the codes, the football codes when I was growing up, is I still haven't felt the full power of my body in the way that um, men do and boys do and you do now. Um, when you're taking a tackle, when you're receiving a tackle, when you're lifting yourself up into the air, mm. taking a specky, you know, running in, in a way that's so free. Mm. The sports I played were particularly for women. Well, netball was a great example of just stop, start, yep. you know, um, protecting ourselves. Mm. Even basketball didn't feel like it was a, a full freedom of the body. I played tennis, I swam, I rode, mm. um, I did sports that were. Um, I, had, I really loved. Mm. I loved doing all of those things, but I've never felt the power of landing a tackle or receiving a tackle and knowing how my body could do that as a woman. Mm. And I used to watch, and I still do when I watch um, footy. I watch it now much more with the women's game because yep. I love the women's game so much. But just watching watching the men's game, mm. I just think these spectacular things that go mm. on with the body. Um, I felt like I had a, my body was protected throughout my sporting life and yeah. I would have loved to have felt that. So I think had it been available, I would have, have been I would have been up for it. And um yeah, in the same way I wanted to get out of netball and get to basketball, it was to get to the things where it was a bit more action packed and a free a free flowing. I think you could have been you're quite tall, Sam, so you could have been a good full forward. Yeah, I think probably a full forward. Mm. I think that's probably where I'd yeah, but I don't want to be that kind of person that says full forward just because of I reckon the well, history of Permission well, is here. Okay, thanks. Full forward. Okay, well, let's, let's call it In fact, it that. it's not too late. <laughs> There's got to be a master's program or a senior's one <laughs> for uh, women in their mid-50s. <laughs> so I think I've, I would love to still feel that because, you know, as I get older, and I think about this a lot with, with women athletes and the, the reason we should have had all these sports open to women to know the power of our body and to build strength in our bodies as we get older mm. is that I'm probably – I probably need to do a lot of work to be as strong in my body to protect myself for my later years. <laughs> um, and that's what I see with all, you know, you magnificent athletes, particularly in um, in Aussie rules, but not limited to that. I mean, Grace playing cricket, mm. I am just, I cannot get more excited other than with AFLW than watching the women's, mm. um, the, the cricket, our Australian women mm. players. And then to see us in the WBL and to see just this, you know, to see India now. Um, backing the WBL and to see Australian players mm. through that, I just it's so it's thrilling. It's incredible. Yeah, yeah. 
It's very. It's, it's, it's where it should have always been, but yeah, we're there. I think. Well, thanks to to people like you, we've made huge leaps and strides. And people like you, <laughs> not at all. <laughs> Sam, your CV clearly shows that you have a drive for creating positive change in a range of important issues across the social and political landscape. You sort of mentioned a little bit about your childhood and your upbringing and how this has contributed a lot. You know, is there any other places that this drive comes from? Do you think it was really from, um, I guess, the way that you grew up and, you know, you mentioned door knocking and, and doing all of those kinds of things as a kid. Is that really where this all comes from? I do think it comes from a, a sort of sense of service yep. and never resting in terms of um, the things I have and think that's what life's about. It is mm. mainly it's service and community and mm. looking around and realising what part of a community you are. And my parents, I just think, instilled in us that sense of use everything that you have to be part of a community mm. and know where you've, again, this thing about privilege, we, were, we weren't a wealthy family. We were an army family um, with you know, hardworking parents um, and, and a large family of six of us, you know, as we were doing our little basic holidays of jumping in the car and going to army holiday resorts in, um, in the Gold Coast and things like that. Mm. But it was a sense of we were lucky, mm. you know, we were doing well. And so where, where would we actually, um, where, is we, where would we as growing up mm. deploy ourselves to be Making contributions, mm. and I was, I've just been—I've have had a huge amount of luck in my life, and I've been lucky to work uh, with and for people who have had a similar view. Mm. And I think I've grown up and, and then got into a working environment at a time when the whole debate around corporate responsibility, the 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 kind of um, the edges that were between the private sector, public sector, government, not non-government, sport, arts. I love to think that I was operating in that sort of the weft and weaved of that and mm. to know that the things that typically separated someone who was either, you know, in business or in government or sports versus arts. I was, I think as I was growing up, I was traversing all that thinking these are really false yeah. uh, binary views about how the world works and everyone has a story and a thing, set of things they're interested mm. in and not defined by the fact that they might work in a company or they're working not-for-profit, we've all got some sort of purpose in life. Mm. And so I was lucky to be involved in um, in the business world um, with a whole lot of other interests that came from having worked for people like Michael Kirby when he was president of the Court of Appeal in New mm -hmm. South Wales and then working for Paul Keating when mm. he was prime minister yeah. to think about the role that we all have to play in um Building a better country, and yeah. what what, are, what what's our role, what's all of our roles in that, and what do we all have an ambition for, mm. and that um, good policy matters, and good behaviour of companies matters, and thinking about things through multiple lenses matters for the country to do well. So I had lots of I had lots of guides along the way, mm. really encouraging me to keep pushing yeah. and to work at those intersections um, yeah. a lot of the time. Well, Sam, it's also now people like you that keep pushing us to do more as well. So you mentioned Paul Keating. Um, you were Paul Keating's communications advisor. Can you tell us a bit about what that was like? So I was invited to join his office as Prime Minister towards the end of the Keating government. I'd worked as a policy advisor for the Minister for Transport and Communications, Senator Bob Collins, and then the Minister for Communications and the Arts, 
Michael Lee. So I was following the communications portfolio when I was invited to, mm-hmm. to join the Prime Minister's office. And I was not so much his communications advisor, but communications policy okay. advisor. So my job was to look at the communications portfolio. So that was the ABC, SBS, mm-hmm. um, Telecom as it then was, mm-hmm. um, and, it, and the early days of broadband and looking at the what was coming at us with um, online and the, sort of the tech revolution. Mm. And I also had responsibility in part for some sports policy and there yeah. were bits around the edge that we were asked to look after um, in that office. And uh, so it was really engaging with the Prime Minister and being a point of connection to his cabinet ministers and to people in the community generally who wanted yeah. to to bring ideas around policies. Yeah. And so um, it was thrilling. Mm. Um, and I, I remember him always saying that the, the prize for public service is public progress. Mm. Has always stuck with me that that's you know that's um, what Emma's husband Dave is doing in the Senate. Mm. You know all the people we we, we choose as our representatives, mm. they get a hard time. You know, people love to bash politicians, mm. but I think what they are doing, and increasingly with more women joining mm. the parliaments and government, um, and oppositions, and the number of women independents alongside um, David. You know, they are there because they believe in public progress mm. and they're, they're sacrificing a lot of things to do that. Mm. And I learned that from Paul um, and to always keep our our eyes on a sort of horizon that was always better and that mm. we could always do better. Yeah. So I'm um, very, very lucky to be taught and um, inspired by, by someone like him. Yeah, fantastic. He wasn't very sporty though. <laughs> <laughs> he had you. No. Fine. I, yeah, I think he was a Collingwood. I think he said he was Collingwood. <laughs> as, and I think he, was, he was the number one ticket holder at one stage, but... Um, it was well, never his It's just because the Giants weren't around. He, I'm well, sure he would have been a Giants if women, fan. If the women's game had been around, we would have got him to actually become a patron for one of the women's. Perfect. <laughs> so Loved I don't hope. Sam, you've also been the chair of the Climate Council Board for 10 years, recently retiring last December to start a new role at the Climate Change Authority. Was there a moment that led you to dedicate part of your career to the climate movement? Yes, and unlike... Um, Emma and Grace's remarkable stories and the things that they experienced as much younger women, my understanding of the environment really only became activated when I started working at a large insurance company. Mm -hmm. So I started working at Insurance Australia Group in around about 2000 and Michael Hawker was the chief executive and my boss and I was the head of sustainability and Mm -hmm. um, a number of things to do with public affairs and culture at the organisation. And he just said, um, you need to get right across this whole area that's coming, sustainability, Mm. and I want to understand what is an insurance company's role in the middle of all of this. And so that was – I hadn't thought about the environment. I mean, I – I'd taken advantage of the environment and our beautiful beaches and parks and the like, but mm. it never really hit me that there was a, a thing that I would be doing in this space. Mm. And so suddenly to be faced with the data and evidence yep. about what was happening in our insurance markets that was being driven by a change in the climate mm. and the change of weather profile, I just sat to, the first thing that Michael said to me was, you'll be all about the social stuff and about wanting to move the culture but I want you to build a partnership with our chief actuary, mm. Tony Coleman, because Tony's got the actuarial tables and the numbers, he's got the handle on what is happening and and you two need to work together. Mm. And I, I thought at the time, I'm, this is going to be awful because I have, <laughs> I'm not a numbers person and I, I'd met actuaries before who had been just so thoroughly skilled in numbers. Yeah. But Michael was doing something very important for both of us and for the company mm. and it was saying, if you two can find a way to communicate what's going on 
that underpins our reinsurance markets, mm. the fact that insurance premiums will grow rapidly mm. if we don't address these issues. Um, so find a way to understand that and then become a um, a force for good. Mm. And we changed the uh, we changed the focus of the company. Mm. So we had a purpose when I arrived that was to pay claims. Mm. We, were the, we were the largest general insurer in the country at the time. Mm. Um, and over a year, we worked with all the people on in the company to say, what is the purpose of insurance mm. really? And they told us that the purpose of insurance was to reduce risk in society. There you go. So we went from a purpose that was pay claims to mm. help reduce risk. And yep. so that gave us our license to look at the big risk issues for the country. Mm. The biggest one was climate risk mm. and the second was social. Yep. So we did a lot of work on social risk and what was happening um, with the drivers of crime and all sorts of things. It also went to a sense of better understanding community. But we brought Al Gore out. We took Al Gore around the country as he was releasing his first film mm. um, and we, we got in touch with every NRMA customer we mm -hmm. could across New South Wales in Western Sydney. We did a number of big events in Western Sydney for NRMA customers at the time to put Al Gore's film up mm. and The Inconvenient Truth and to have a question and answer about what this would mean for families living in Western Sydney mm. in the, if the profile of um, unattenuated climate change continued in the mm. West of Sydney. And I'll never forget... Um, the, the incredibly important questions and the, these deeply personal questions that members of the community asked. There was mm. a man who he sat in the front row and I thought he was actually quite negative. I thought he was going to say, yeah, this is all rubbish and this mm. is the sort of, I just want you to insure my, my house and my car. <laughs> and he sat there and at the end he put his hand up and he said, just tell me what this means for my kids. Right. Like, can my kids play sport like I did? Where will my kids play sport? Well, I, and he said something like, do I have to put an aluminium foil hat on them and will they ever have the feeling of sun on their skin or is, are those days over for my kids in 20 years' time? He hadn't had kids yet. It was, mm. I thought at the time this is the conversation we should be having. Yep. We've got to get it out of the theory and out of the – I mean, I was a very big supporter of the IPCC work mm. and setting the, the whole um, science base up, but yeah. we were in an ideological warfare during that time, which mm. was saying that climate change wasn't real. Mm. And yet when you – as Grace knows this, you know, we were sitting with families that you would you would know in your community, Grace. And those questions were the questions I thought we should have kept going with as a country to say people really care about this mm. because it's intergenerational. Yep. They can feel it. They know they know something's going on. Mm. But the politics was just terrible. And mm. um, but during that time, we created the business roundtable for climate change. In two thousand and six, we called for a price on carbon. Yep. That was a series of big corporates. Um, saying if we get a price on carbon, we'll be more innovative about how we get carbon out yep. of the system, we'll be more innovative about what we do mm. in a renewable context. And so my awakening came through, you know, the, the strangest yeah. of sources was insurance. Yeah. And and while I was at IAG, I joined the AFL Commission. Yeah. And so then there was this collision yeah. with thinking about sport in that context and the, yep. and the footy. So um, that's where I started. So it's been 20, 25 years of really thinking deeply about um about how all these things come together and why climate action is so fundamental yeah. on every level. Yeah, absolutely. And and when you say it like that, you you, t you speak about that man in the front row asking about what it might mean for his kids. Mm. If you, you know, you can come at this from any different angle. People have different moments in their lives that start making them think about this stuff and it, it can be different, but at the end of the day it is going to, it is affecting all different parts of our lives. Well, I'm, I think about that time. So that was around 2000 and I don't know, four, five, six, um, that we were doing all of this work um, at its most acute. Mm. And I think about 
how we were saying right then, as from an insurance point of view and caring about people, mm. how can we not put people in harm's way? Yeah. We can see what's coming. Mm. We can see the um, the actuarial configurations alongside all the science work we were doing with CSIRO. You could see this looming set of things happening, crises. Mm. So it was either um, heat, um, floods, wind, cyclones. Mm. Uh, it was extremities. It was this, this new form of extreme set of events that were coming faster and more often. And we talked about it all the time that it was, would make insurance unaffordable. Um, and, and that. And I then think, what if we'd been able to draw on the analysis and say by 2022-3, Lismore will have been hit three times within 12 months mm. with the kind of conditions, flooding and um, and rain that will wipe that town out three times. Mm. What would we do now if we could get you to understand that's what's coming and how – take out the insurance discussion or mm. the science discussion. These are people whose lives will be forever affected and how are we going to handle that? How as a country will we handle that mm. um, and how do we get ahead of that to take people out of harm's way or do the the work now mm. to reduce the potential for those kind of events by keeping the climate by, by keeping the temperature within safe ranges yeah. and and to actually commit to a an incredible it would have been a would have been a nation building exercise mm. back in the mid 2000s to commit to a net zero we would have been the world leaders on yeah. on everything and and because we are very much the the test bed for so many of these events yeah. And so people are living it all the time. And yeah. What do you say to people in Lismore today about where they can live mm. and how they'll live and what we owe them and what, what our behaviour as, as the greatest users of carbon um, have done to our own people? Sam, you mentioned that you were on the AFL Commission. Um, you were the first woman ever to be appointed to the AFL Commission in 2005. Your time in the role saw you contribute to the development of the AFL's respect and responsibility policy and also part of the leading part of leading the establishment of the AFLW. Tell us about this and your time on the commission over the 11 years. Was it pretty tough at times? Where do we start on this one? <laughs> I kind of think this is a whole other pod on um, on gender yes, and sport, but <laughs> gender and footy. Um, I was incredibly honoured to to be the woman who was appointed to the commission in two thousand and five. A few things to say about that. That was the first time that the commission had applied an interview process and used search firms to look for people of talent to join the commission. Wow! And yet, and, that, and there were ten candidates, and we were put through incredible. Um, Questions, interrogations, various interviews, including testing whether we understood the rules of the game of football. Oh gosh, this could be I'll another just leave episode. That sitting there, <laughs> um, and and I was very fortunate that any number of those, any one of those ten women could have been um, on the commission towards the end. So mm. I I was very very fortunate. And Ron Evans was the chair of the commission at the time, and I remember saying to him, "This is a great honour, but there'll be no honour if in being the first, I'm the only. Mm. So can we?" Commit to more women and more people of diversity joining the commission as a as a productive thing to do and a determined thing to do. So he mm. agreed to that, and so subsequently we had a number of women who appointed. And today there are four women on the AFL commission. Mm -hmm. um, it was a it was a lonely thing to do, actually. Mm. And I think this is something we have to think about when we're opening up all sectors to be truly welcoming and where people should feel that they belong. And I don't know how you feel coming mm. into the game as, as a professional football player. 
um, as a woman. But my sense coming in in 2005 was I had to make my way. I had to figure it out. Mm. They didn't know what to do with me, I think, to start with. Um, I tried to avoid being that person in the room, in the commission at, at least, that had a woman's perspective. Mm. So I, I always said if there were matters to do with men's behaviour mm. that came to the commission, they shouldn't turn to me and ask, well, what does a woman think or what mm. does a mother think mm. and how do we, you know, you tell us what to do. I'd always push her back and say, we have to have a collective view about what we think yeah. about behaviour. And if you don't think about it the same way I do, we've got a problem yes. because men have responsibilities. So it was about trying to carve out a role to say a woman as a commissioner is a full commissioner mm. for the sport, um, for the strategy of the sport, and not to be there to represent women or to bring a woman's voice separate mm. to the, the governance of the game. So it was, that was hard. Yeah. Um, there were some really great men on that commission and who were very supportive but the sport itself was not ready yep. at the time. So um, a group of us, a group of women, figured that out. Penny, uh, Peggy O'Neill was mm-hmm. was just becoming president of the Tigers, yep. uh, Richmond Tigers, breaking history there. And of course, now there's many, many women on the boards of football clubs and mm-hmm. and uh, presidents of clubs, premiership winning clubs, like doing really well. Yeah. But it was tough. It was really tough. And the first time I talked about um, women having their own league mm. um, was a very difficult very difficult moment, mm. just as it was talking about climate and yeah. um, and talking about First Nations issues. So there was already a lot of people who wanted to do more for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander players and mm. to join the Respect campaign. But to actually get into that and understand what that commitment would look like really mm. and that, that would um, and, and tackle racism mm. and tackle um, incredible um, bias and, and cognitive dissonance around um, a game that actually was thriving based on the, the talent and yeah. and commitment of Aboriginal players and supporters, and but yet not being able to understand what that meant yeah. as part of the commitment of the game more generally. Same thing on climate mm. and certainly the same thing on women. Yeah. And it was many years of hard work by a number of people. Um, and I've got to say that when I joined the commission, I had so many women who had played football around yeah. the country from their childhood onwards who'd been blocked yeah. at that point where they could become professional or, or yeah. go on, who just said, it is your job to represent <laughs> us. No pressure. No, no, it was actually it was actually enlivening because yeah. they saw for the first time someone like them or hadn't played mm. but who, like, who who was the same gender, yeah. who was sitting at the table able to bring women's a women's claim to the sport mm. into that room where yeah. it, hadn't, it hadn't arrived before. So this thing about representation – Making sure that everyone is there. That was mm. that was my that was one of my main roles, as it was for Linda Desso when she joined, and the successive mm. women that we just bound together, and then we brought the men along. Yeah, um, on this incredible, thrilling journey. Yeah, um, against all odds, though, it was not seen as a smart or appropriate thing to do. Um, there you and, go. And you've got to look at what it's done for the game. And yeah. and honestly, Nick, just to see the work that you've done with your teammates and the pioneering spirit of the women's game, I think it has redefined the whole game. I think it's part of the redefining of sport um, for women and how you conduct yourself and and how you lead and why you make it so thrilling for everyone, not just for women. Well, we're eternally grateful, Sam, and we wouldn't be playing without you. Not sure that's right, but we all all, all played our role. We wouldn't. No, we're very grateful and that's um, that's a pretty amazing story. I'd love to have been a fly on the wall listening to some of those early conversations. Sam, you're also, or you were also on the board of the Sydney Swans, uh, my rival team. <laughs> what role did you play with the Sydney Swans? Well, when I left the commission, 
I was invited by the Swans to join. Mm-hmm. Um, my family in Sydney, my husband and my daughter mm-hmm. were Swannies, yep. and so um, it was a it was a nice thing to be asked. And I, was, I have a very very soft spot for the Giants because I was <laughs> on the commission when hear. we approved the. Yep. formation of yep. the Giants and I worked with Dave Matthews, your yes. CEO, um, to make sure we got the funding right for Greater Western Sydney and yep. to make that a success. So I felt very emotionally connected yep. to the success of the Giants and particularly as one of the earliest teams yep. in the Women's League. Yep. Uh, so on the board of a, of a footy club, lots of governance, lots of having to think through the issues that ensure that, that the club can maintain its its position both as a, um, a, a you know, try to win premierships, but more mm. importantly, um, sponsorships, membership growth, yep. um, the, the ground. So the, the, the Swans have now moved into their new facility yes. um, at Moore Park. And so it's always thinking on behalf of the club, you know, what are the things that will make this club sustainable and mm. and, and understanding that all the pieces that bring together a successful football club. Mm. And so I was on that board for just over four years yep. um, when I decided I would step back from uh, club governance and Mm. And focus on some other things, but yep. uh, but not until we'd we'd also secured an AFLW team for I the was Swans. Say, so it's yeah, one of the late comments. Um, once that was done, I felt like I'd probably I'd spent my then sort of sixteen years around football governance. Um, yeah, that was I I just love going as a fan yeah. to the games now. Yeah, you're a trailblazer, Sam, and it's great to see the Sydney Swans having women's side in the competition as well. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Cooldown, a footy for climate podcast. The Cooldown is produced by Sam Dalton and audio is edited by Darcy Parkinson from Producey. Episode research is done by me, Jasper Pittard and Aloise Witkowski.